Welcome to Act and Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. I want to thank you for listening. I want to ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate right now to the show notes for this episode, where you'll find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else where you listen to find podcasts. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find our show. I'm joined today by Dan Huger, Acton's librarian and a research associate, and Dylan Palman, executive editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality and a research fellow here at Acton. This week, we'll discuss the possible annexation of part of Guyana by Venezuela and the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day on Capitol Hill for a few elite university presidents. But first, uh, last week, Henry Kissinger, uh, it's now two weeks ago, Henry Kissinger uh, passed away at the age of 100. I will read a little bit here from Morning Dispatch. Uh, Kissinger, who died on Wednesday at the age of 100, served as Secretary of State in two presidential administrations and is generally viewed as the most powerful diplomat in post-war American history, working to open China to the Western world and negotiating the United States' first arm control deal with the Soviet Union. In addition to playing a pivotal role in brokering the end of the Yom Kippur War, as well as the U.S. involvement in the Vietnam War, for which he was awarded the 1973 Nobel Peace Prize, Kissinger undoubtedly helped usher in the conclusion of the Cold War. Yet his long career wasn't without controversy, and he faced fierce criticism, both at the time and later in his life, for his role in decisions to bomb civilians, meddle in the affairs of developing nations, and ignore certain human rights abuses around the globe. Still, Kissinger advised presidents and world leaders up to his final days and passed away this week as arguably the most consequential diplomatic figure of the 20th century. Uh, A lot of the grave dancing that was going on uh, with Kissinger's death was uh, accusations of him having been a war criminal that I personally think are a a bit overdone. Um, But certainly, as this uh, intro referenced here, a controversial figure, definitely a good characterization of a foreign policy perspective that did exist back in especially the 1970s and I think still does exist to a certain extent now, a kind of cold-hearted realism that in my own interpretation of Kissinger, I think bordered a little bit too close to cynical. Uh, as And it is interesting, while I think you have to, as this uh, piece from the Morning Dispatch says, um, give him some of the credit for helping to bring about the end of the Cold War. It is interesting that it is Reagan's idealism that is ushered in at the end of the 70s and the 1980s that really helps pave the way for the end of the Soviet Union, not the kind of cold-eyed, cold-hearted, calculating realism that Kissinger was so clearly associated with. Um, he's also the author of a number of books. And while I have not read it, everybody who has read it has told me that um, his diplomacy book is probably going to be read for a very long time. Uh, He had this remarkable skill of being a um, not only uh, a a successful diplomat, but a very good writer about these things, which often aren't skills that uh, necessarily go together. And someone else had pointed out that he had a unique uh, combination of skills in his professional life, one of them being that he was absolutely brilliant. And I think that's rather hard to deny, even if you agree with him or disagree with him. You can acknowledge the brilliance of the man, uh, that he was also a grade A flatterer. Uh, He really knew how to appeal to people's desire to be flattered and, and Typically, you see one of the two of those things. You see the incredibly brilliant person who doesn't think that flattery is a thing that they have to engage in because of their brilliance. And you see a lot of people who develop that flattery and kind of suck upishness to compensate for not being nearly as brilliant as somebody like Kissinger. But if you go back and you look at um, how Kissinger became uh, so powerful within the Nixon administration, it is largely because of, A, his brilliance. Nixon even said that, you know, Kissinger, um, I can't remember, was it, I can't remember the name of the Secretary of State that um, Kissinger ended up surpassing. Uh, But 
basically Nixon's take was, well, he had nothing to teach me and thought Kissinger did. Uh, but Kissinger also knew how to appeal to the part of Richard Nixon that liked to be flattered. And that helped him a lot, achieving a uniquely powerful position. As I noted, he served in two presidential administrations, the only person to simultaneously be Secretary of State and National Security Advisor, which is a lot of power for one person to wield. Although it is interesting that he only served in those two presidential administrations and the Nixon administration and then with Ford and was never in government again, but continued to advise Powerful people, not only in the United States, but his Kissinger and associates uh, would advise a lot of foreign governments. I think this is one of the things where he does come in for some legitimate criticism. There is some certain ickiness at a minimum to the kind of you know coming out of a powerful role like that and setting up a consultancy uh, in order to consult for foreign governments, particularly in Kissinger's case, China and Russia. I'm sure those uh, are will be plenty of the things that um, he'll come in for criticism for. But I will uh, I'll throw it open to you uh, both, whoever wants to go first, as we talk here about remembering Henry Kissinger. One of the things to remember when we talk about Henry Kissinger is he's an example of a 20th century phenomena of – the sort of brain trust that is tapped by presidents to come into their administrations. This is something that, of course, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt was very famous for. This is the first brain trust that he begins to bring in to administer the New Deal. Woodrow Wilson also came from a university background. So there's like there's a strong strain in the 20th century and 20th century of American life of sort of picking the cream of the crop out from the university system. And Kissinger was Nixon's choice um, that was like this. Uh, Nixon um, was very taken with Kissinger's writings. This was the initial attraction. And, you know, uh, actually the, uh, the uh, Henry A. Kissinger Center for Global Affairs at Johns Hopkins just republished last year his PhD dissertation uh, at Harvard, which was titled The Meaning of History, Reflections on Spengler, Toynbee, and, Kant, and Kant. And it is Huge. You can find it online. We can put the archive.org uh, links up to it. Um, it is a mammoth work. Um, it is beautifully written. Like even, you know, when you think, you know, PhD dissertations, these are often unreadable documents. Um, so not only did he know his stuff, he knew how to talk about it. That being said, I think Kissinger's legacy on American foreign policy is largely negative. And I don't mean this in the sort of shallow, screeching Henry Kissinger is a war criminal sort of way. Now, I think those sorts of charges are very serious. I think if you look at Henry Kissinger's career and try to match it up with any sort of just war doctrine, you're going to have some problems. But bigger than that, you know, his leading accomplishments were one, detente, a way of normalizing relations with the Soviet Union in a way to achieve sort of de-escalation and arms control. Now, there are reasons, there were reasons at the time to believe that sort of nuclear exchange could have been an eminent threat. I think history has vindicated the position that, um, you know, we're all standing here Nuclear proliferation has happened. It's happened in regimes as sinister as North Korea and as unstable as Pakistan. And we still have not, thank God, had a nuclear exchange. So what exactly the dividends of that policy were? Because that involved sacrificing American integrity on things like human rights. Um, this is part of what is involved in that process. Another key um, – contribution of Kissinger is the normalization of relations with China. Um, this is something that we talk about a lot on this podcast. Uh, China was, in fact, uh, probably in a worse position than it is today when the, that normalization talks began under Mao Zedong. It looked like that that process of normalization would bear some fruits of enduring liberalization of the Chinese regime. That is not what we have seen over the last decade, at least, if not 
slightly more. There's been considerable rollback of those limited gains that have been made. And uh, China is looking more and more back to that 70s era model um, than uh, forward to the sort of liberalization model of Deng Xiaoping. We also have a curiously... China was a choice that was made at the time. There were other potential countervailing powers to Soviet influence, one of which is India. That could have been a possibility for political initiative. Uh, that is something that the United States did not do, did chose very actively not to pursue that, to pursue instead closer ties to Pakistan, uh, to counterbalance Soviet influence in the region. And I think that the United States would be in a much better position strategically today if it had leaned on developing a relationship with India rather than China during this period. Now, Kissinger is also a sort of figure of um, drama and fun. In, in the history of American life from the sort of deep baritone voice. Um, this is somebody that's very fun to do impersonations of. We did a little of that before the podcast today. I will not bore listeners with my very poor Henry Kissinger uh, impression, but I will tell them my favorite Henry Kissinger story. The night before President Nixon announces his resignation, he is alone in his office and everyone in his administration knows what he's pondering is, is he going to do this? Is he not? And everyone in the Nixon administration is kind of terrified to interrupt him as he's deliberating. But as it's getting later and later, everybody's on edge. And finally, Henry Kissinger volunteers to be the one to come in and ask the president what he's thinking. And President Nixon, uh, you know, Kissinger knocks on the door and he says, you know, Mr. President. And, you know, President Nixon lets him in and he comes in and, you know, and President Nixon starts to say, he says, Henry, he goes, I'm not a particularly good Quaker and I know that you're not a particularly good Jew but I need you to pray with me now. And Henry Kissinger is just dumbfounded by this. He is not particularly observant, has not known President Nixon to be particularly observant, but he says, of course, Mr. President. And Richard Nixon then leads him into the adjoining bedroom and they kneel beside the bed and President Nixon begins to weep because this is overwhelming. Just, you know, the, the momentousness of this decision, reflecting on his own life, his own decisions, his responsibilities. And Henry Kissinger just sits beside, kneels beside him. And eventually, this becomes very uncomfortable to Henry Kissinger. He says, well, Mr. President, I'm going to leave. And then he leaves. And then he goes down the hall into his office. And there's two gentlemen in Kissinger's staff are there in the office. They ask him, you know, what happened? And he goes, he goes, the president wanted me to pray with him. And he cried. And then the office phone rings and he picks it up and it's President Nixon. And President Nixon says, Henry, you can't tell anyone about this. The people need to know that their president has been strong. And Henry goes, of course, Mr. President. It hangs up the phone. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, boy. Um, I mean, it's hard to add to that. Uh, I, What I find, I mean, there's a million things you could say about Henry Kissinger. I am hardly a foreign policy ex expert in any way, not to mention a Henry Kissinger expert. Um, but kind of building on a little bit of what Dan mentioned in terms of him having writing this massive dissertation, being known for his academic writing. Kissinger is a really interesting example of an academic who had to actually put his money where his mouth was. Um, and the results of that 
we're not always great. They're not always they're not things all everything that we should celebrate. They're things that are rightly criticized even by the people screeching on Twitter. They're not wrong <laughs> to be upset with a lot about a lot of those things. Um, but the real world is very messy. Um, and I don't say that in any way to excuse um, those things. Uh, but you can have the best ideals, not to say that Kissinger did, as you mentioned, he, perhaps too cynical. Um, but this is someone who has real accomplishments. I mean, basically a key player in negotiating the end of the Vietnam War to the point of receiving the Nobel Peace Prize, although they give that to a lot of people that maybe don't necessarily deserve it. Yeah, Yasser Arafat um, also won the yeah. Nobel Peace Prize. So yep. yeah. I had him in mind. Um, <laughs> uh, but still, huge thing. Um, uh, you know, the the kind of de-escalating of tensions between Soviet Union and the U.S., that's huge. That was, I mean, people... We forget, as I'm a millennial, um, I think all of us here are, at least, uh, or that are very young Gen X. Um, but, like, people used to have bomb drills in schools, right? I mean, now the horrifying thing is we have, like, shooter drills in schools. But back then it was hide under your desk because the Soviets might drop a nuclear bomb on us, um, which probably bred a certain cynicism among the students, I would imagine, um, because I don't know how that would help. But... Uh, but there's there's just this entirely different world, this incredibly precarious and dangerous world, international, you know, community of nations or lack of community of nations, really. Um, and he was a key player in de-escalating that. Um, the China stuff. I mean, you know, I think I think Dan makes some great points about India. Um, but maybe it didn't have to be in either or. I mean, maybe in either or between India and Pakistan, but maybe not between India and China. And if you look at China, yes, most of the liberal, liberalizing you know, direction, like in the 90s, they didn't have religious freedom on paper, but in practice, in a lot of cases, they did. Um, that's how you, you get a huge growth of Christianity in China. In part, it was a friendlier environment a few decades ago. Um, and now you have a ton of house churches and, you know, people who it's, you know, their their everyday religious practice is illegal. Um, and they're, they're constantly worried about who might find out. Um, but you also have this huge, massive progress in terms of eliminating extreme poverty in China. And that be, that comes from liberalizing economic reforms. Again, unfortunately, many of those have been rolled back in the last decade or so uh, under Xi. Um, and that's unfortunate for everyone in the world, but especially people in China. Um, but it's huge. I mean, it, it, the, the, the Mao and the Cultural Revolution were absolutely disastrous, just on a basic level of cultural destruction, destruction of human life, all those sorts of things. But then they plunged a you know, nation of people, hundreds of millions of people, who were already not developed into crushing poverty. And in part because of normalizing of relations uh, and, and even, you know, again, uh, not something that's very popular today, but the integration of China into the WTO. Uh, I think there are good reasons to criticize that. Um, but part of the result is, you know, hundreds of millions of people no longer living in crushing poverty. Um, so the reality on the ground is very, very hard to disentangle. Um, it's very, very hard to distill down to, did you have the correct ideals? I agree about Reagan. That's a great point. Um, that you, it, To really end the Cold War, you had to have someone who believed in something higher um, than simply United States national interest, although it certainly served that. Um, and, you know, so I think that matters. Um, but I, I don't mean this in the sense of, oh, we got to balance it out. Frankly, if you balance it out, I think even in utilitarian terms, you could definitely criticize <laughs> Kissinger in terms of lives help versus lives hurt. Um, it's it's not good. Um, but it it his life highlights the difficulty that if you want to make a real impact on the world, especially if you're an academic, an intelligent person who has good ideas, who's valued for your ability to think about real world issues, 
I think it's worthwhile taking a good hard look at the life of Henry Kissinger and to ask yourself, how would it really have been different if I were in that situation? Not to say that it wouldn't have been different, um, but just to realize that, yeah, you might you might have it all, you might have it better figured out than him, and yet you might still be placed in a situation with two or three terrible options, and you have to pick one. That is a point that Kissinger made throughout his life, particularly referencing some of the happenings during the Vietnam War, <clears throat> which is to say that if other people who were critics of Kissinger were presented with the same facts and the same realities and the same options that Kissinger and the people that he was advising were presented with, he felt fairly confident that most people would make the same choices that he made. Now, there are definitely people who would not most of those people are committed ideologues, um, whether that is in a more idealistic way, in the way I was describing Reagan. Um, but I think this just goes to highlight how a voice like Kissinger's is necessary in a foreign policy conversation. Foreign policy is complicated. It involves you know, a, a lot of things that are easy to misunderstand. We get a lot of talk now and, and with good merit about the concept of mirroring in foreign policy that we tend to, by default, think that the people on the other side from us think about things the same way that we do, and we process it that way. When in a lot of these cases, no, the incentives are entirely different, the history is entirely different, what informs their decision-making process is entirely different, and it's good and appropriate to understand that. Um, so I, I think it is appropriate and necessary in the, in the same way that, you know, I like the joke about how all domestic policy conversations, and I suppose this could apply to foreign policy too, but at minimum, all domestic policy conversations in this country should have at least one cranky libertarian in the room who asks the question, why should we do anything at all? You need somebody who is going to bring that perspective and ask that question. And sometimes, maybe even a lot of times, the answer to that cranky libertarian is we do need to. Like They're not proven right that like we should just do nothing at all. That doesn't necessarily mean that we go full Kissinger all of the time, but having somebody with that kind of cold, calculating look at the world, at other leaders around the world, at other nations and their interests around the world is a perspective that needs to be involved in foreign policy conversations along with people like uh, with more idealistic streaks like Reagan. Um, it, these are important perspectives to be weighed in one of the most vexing and complicated areas of policy that political leaders deal with. Yeah, one of the difficult things about foreign policy and diplomacy is that you are trying to negotiate between regimes with different legal codes, right? It's not like you have an agreed-upon set of law that you can just appeal to. Um, yeah, we have the UN, but nobody cares about the UN. At least the United States doesn't, and I don't know that very few others should. I mean, yeah. look at members of their security council, you know, things like that. It's it's really uh, disappointing. Although there actually was a great symposium over the weekend on the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which I do think is is a worthwhile document and worth studying. Um, and related, and it's to one the, that's informed by natural law. Yes, well, which that's is what I'm about law. to get to. So, um, one of the things I find interesting. Um, is not at all a John Locke scholar, but people love to criticize John Locke. And one of the criticisms they tend to bring against him, which is completely unfair against him and other social contract theorists, is that there was never a time uh, in which such a state of nature existed, um, which he would admit, Rousseau even admits, I don't like Rousseau at all, uh, but the whole point is it's a thought experiment. And yet, Locke says, actually, there is a case uh, in which the state of nature happens. Um, it is between kings. Right? It is in international affairs where you don't have an agreed-upon social contract. What you have are people who are left uh, basically in relations of the state of nature to one another. And for Locke, that did not mean that anything goes. He was not Thomas Hobbes. Um, for him, it meant natural law. Um, it meant basic relations such as parents to children and things like that, you know, family relations, things that are pre-exists the state. Um, and that that gives a potential basis for evaluating foreign policy, evaluating a man like Henry Kissinger. Um, it's one thing to say, hey, he, he didn't always do things to the letter of the law as we might 
have wanted or our particular ideals as we might have wanted. But we can reference you know, the basic tenets of natural law, the basic kind of Ten Commandments morality. Um, that's something that you can find across cultures, across religions. Um, that's something that people really did find and did incorporate into the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Um, and that's something that I think is worth revisiting. Perhaps, you know, maybe some might say too idealistically so, but um, I think it can provide an anchor um, for trying not to transgress, you know, the boundaries of just war, trying not, um, you know, trying to, to really be more than simply um, the, the best player for my own nation's advantage, but really to put our nation in a position to lead the world towards a more peaceful and prosperous future. One more note that you reminded me of the story from last year when I was traveling with our documentary film, The Hong Konger. Uh, Samuel Chu, who's in the film, made this point. And I think Kissinger kind of represents the attitude that creates the circumstance that Samuel was describing. Um, and <clears throat> worth keeping in mind, of course, the long-run relationship that Kissinger had with China. So there's going to – because there's going to be some China relevance here. Samuel made this point that Hong Kongers have this kind of half joke that Hong Kong has only existed for about 30 seconds. And it was the 30 seconds in between when the Union Jack flag came down and the Chinese flag went up. And in the negotiations that happened between the British and the Chinese, the people who were not at the table were actual Hong Kongers. The people who lived there, who worked there, that that was their home, were not a party at the table. People negotiated on their behalf. And I think you see this instinct in a lot of what passes as realist foreign policy, um, although I think it is worth keeping in mind. While I do think there is actually a thing as a realist foreign policy, uh, too often the working definition of uh, someone who is losing a foreign policy argument is usually right. Um, they retreat into this, well, I'm just being a realist about it. It's like, no, you're just getting bettered in, uh, in this argument, and that's totally fine. Uh, but you see it in conversations about Russia and Ukraine, too, where you know, it's like, well, the United States should set, step in and solve this thing and, you know, and get you – know, the United States and Russia should come to the table and decide what should happen. It's like Ukraine kind of needs to be a part of this whole thing as well. And I think that cynical attitude that pervaded – Kissinger's approach to foreign policy is one that leads to those kind of circumstances. Speaking of foreign policy issues, another one, at least it's foreign policy from our perspective here in the United States. I'm going to read here from an, an article from the Associated Press. The government of Guyana, under pressure from neighboring Brazil and a Caribbean trading bloc, agreed Sunday to join bilateral talks with Venezuela over an es escalating territorial dispute. The century-old dispute between the two South American nations recently reignited with the discovery of masses of oil in Guyana. The government of Nicolas Maduro, through a referendum last week, has claimed sovereignty over the – somebody help me out with the pronunciation here – Essequibo? Essequibo? I think so. Uh, sure. Apologies if I'm saying that wrong. Please send me a nasty email and correct me. Uh, the Essequibo Territory, which accounts for two-thirds of Guyana and lies near big offshore oil deposits. Even as troops mass on both sides of the shared Venezuelan-Guyana border, Guyana President Irfan Ali said Sunday that his country will meet on the eastern Caribbean island nation of St. Vincent on Thursday to discuss where border lies between the two uh, – uh, borderlines between the two nations are drawn. So obviously an issue of concern if uh, we are going to get another country attempting to annex a part of another country. That's what we're seeing in the Russia-Ukraine conflict that we just referenced. And uh, certainly you could understand the motivation from the Venezuelan side. Venezuela is one of those great cautionary tales of how you can take a rich, well-off country and turn it into a disaster in just a short period of time by embracing ostensibly communism. Um, not really good. And now to have it being uh, posturing here, at least, as a aggressive military power uh, attempting to annex this portion of Guyana, 
largely for the oil reserves, which, again, the source of that wealth in Venezuela that they managed to find a way to completely fritter away was oil. Uh, so not good circumstances in South America. What do you make of it? I mean, so Venezuela has been described as the world's first formerly developed country. Um, no one, I, you know, they had a referendum on December 3rd. I don't really trust this. I mean, I suppose if people go in and vote, maybe they had to vote. There are countries where voting is mandatory, in which case, you know, it is a dictatorship and they're just going to vote for whatever the dictator wants. You know, I, I would not trust this. I would not call this democratic. No um, more than the the referendum that existed in uh, part of Russian speaking Ukraine that was orchestrated by Vladimir Putin. This is a common tactic to provide a pretext for actions that leaders like that would want to do anyway. So I think there's plenty of reason to be skeptical. Yeah, I mean, that's these. that's at least a little more complex in that it you know, still currently is not Russia, although there's some highly Russian sympathetic people and there are definitely Russian actors there. But but yes, definitely there are reasons to look at situations like that um, in parts of the world where they don't really have the basic institutions you need to have real, genuine democratic elections. Uh, you should always be skeptical of the results of any election they have. Um, that I really wish more of our foreign policy uh, focus not on spreading democracy, but spreading the foundations of democracy. Things like religious liberty, economic liberty, freedom of the press, rule of law. You need all of those things to have a successful democracy. Um, and I don't really see that in the Donbass, and that's definitely not the case in Venezuela. Um, but Venezuela, I believe, I, correct me if I'm wrong, is the most oil-rich country in the world. So they, they should be the richest country in the world. Um, they are, you know, the people there are living in poverty. They, their currency is completely worthless. A, a Venezuelan dollar or peso means nothing to the point where people were scrambling to crypto, which is not a good option. I'm sorry, crypto enthusiasts out there. It is currently not a currency. It is a commodity. Um, but it was better better than the Venezuelan uh, you know, currency, they tried to control prices on currency exchanges, which is insane and impossible. Um, and they just, they're sitting on wealth. And instead of actually using it to better the situation of their people, they are squandering it due to a completely inhuman ideology, which does not value the rights and dignity of individual human beings and citizens among them, and obviously does not uh, value those things among their neighbors. Um, the fact that they are looking to Guyana, they, this claim, they, they actually make a historical claim that, oh, this was once part of Venezuela. It was ceded to Guyana in 1899. That that's more than 100 years ago. If anybody has a historical claim on this region, it is Guyana. Um, and it, it is, there's no justification for this posturing. Um, and it's a really precarious situation. Guyana does not have the military means necessary to defend themselves on their own. Um, they are appealing to help from Brazil um, and the United States. They are entering into bilateral talks with Venezuela uh, to try to, you know, try to dispel potential conflict here. Um, but that, I'm not encouraged by that. Um, and it's a little worrying. And there's, there's, the question is worth raising uh, whether there's an opportunistic side of this as well. I mean, part of it is the discovery of the oil. So that's opportunistic on Venezuela's part. But also looking at, again, U.S. foreign policy and support, we have two allies uh, in major military conflicts right now uh, that we are supporting. Congress is struggling to support, um, and people may have various opinions on whether or not they should, uh, but that would be Ukraine and Israel. Um, and so if you're Venezuela and you're like, boy, we could just take all that oil, um, and you're like, oh, what about the United States? Well, maybe that's not going to be as big of an issue to the United States if Israel and Ukraine are already higher on the list. Um, I think that might be a bit presumptuous on their part as well. Uh, we could talk about the history of U.S. foreign policy in Latin America. Um, usually does not involve armies, involves 
you know, the CIA and some pretty questionable stuff, um, perhaps even involving Henry Kissinger. Yeah. Um, I was going to say, we can bring it back to the beginning we, we absolutely uh, could. segment of this program. Um, but this is a big deal. Um, we should care about the people of Guyana and the people of Venezuela. Um, and just like in the case of Hamas, which is a terrorist organization, uh, we need to distinguish between the Venezuelan government and the Venezuelan people. I don't care about this referendum and the 95% of voters who said, yeah, we'll take that. Um, I just don't, I don't buy it for the reasons I already gave. Um, I think it's something that I hope that stays in the news because it doesn't look like it's cooling down anytime soon. I just want to make, underscore your point about just how awful and kleptocratic and depraved a nation needs to be to have that much oil wealth and to end up in the circumstances that Venezuela is in. Because all you need to do is reference any of a number of nations in the Middle East, Gutter, the United Arab Emirates, neither are places that by our standards care a whole heck of a lot about human rights uh, and rights in the way that we would in the United States. And yet they are still incredibly wealthy, largely safe places. You know, certainly plenty of things about the way that they are run that we would quibble with, uh, if not have enormous problems with, but they have not turned into the kind of disaster that Venezuela has been turned into, which really just underscores how awful the Chavez and then Maduro regimes were in what they visited upon that nation and the people of that nation to turn it from a place with just such incredible natural resources into a place that is just destitute and has terrible poverty. And it really underscores to me just how poisonous that view of the operation of the state and government is when visited upon uh, a nation like that. It also highlights that there are economic laws that are... Immutable. Yes, that are part of human nature. That either you build your policy accounting for them or it will fall apart and their attitude towards things like their currency is fantastical um, and we see that in the results that their their currency is worthless we should not be worried about this and this isn't because we shouldn't be worried about the people of venezuela and this isn't certainly because we shouldn't be worried about the people of guyana in some sort of general sense in which we should be worried about all persons. This, all of this is happening within a context. And the context is there are going to be elections in Venezuela next year. And Nicolas Maduro is nervous. He should be, despite the mammoth state security apparatus in place, despite the fact of his continued um, uh, basically declaring opposition candidates illegal to run whenever they sort of rise to the top. One of the reasons he's doing this is because there was an agreement come to between the United States and Venezuela to begin allowing Venezuela to sell oil at market prices to the United States. That is contingent upon allowing the opposition in Venezuela to operate in free and fair elections, or so the hope is. I think this is naive, but this is the game plan. And there are mechanisms in place for the United States to abrogate this agreement should they not see the sort of progress that they would like to see on the way to what they hope will be free and fair elections. That being said, the largest oil producer in the world is the United States. Thank you. It is followed by Russia, which is followed by Saudi Arabia, which is followed by Iraq, which is followed by China, which is followed by Brazil. Okay. Venezuela is now in the 20s because nobody buys it anymore. Yeah. Because it doesn't matter if it's on in the ground if you can't get it to market. Um, what? That's the context in Venezuela. The context in Guyana is these discoveries of offshore oil in this now disputed territory. ExxonMobil made these discoveries. The government of Guyana 
is working on agreements with Exxon to get this going. Um, this dispute, as, as Dylan rightfully pointed out, the, you know, borders in Latin America were very, very fluid in the 19th century. This question was settled in 1899. Even Venezuela's allies in the region. And here we look at, you know, Brazil, because President Lula has been very, very reluctant to criticize President Maduro on anything. He's very, very sympathetic with Maduro's, if not his particular political program, his place in the larger sort of geopolitics of Latin America, uh, very sympathetic to the sort of state socialism that Chavez and Maduro embraced, has come out and said that Latin America does not need border disputes. So Venezuela's chief ally in the region that shares a border with both it and Guyana has said no. The United States has leverage with the recent agreements in terms of oil sales. And you have Guyana is also a former British colony. So there are British interests here. Guyana is also plurality Indian. And I mean this in the South Asian sense. And I guarantee the Modi government would not look well upon any invasion and dismembering of Guyana. This is simply not going to happen. But this is not, when you put on the referendum, make my country bigger and richer, and you have an opportunity to, to tick yes when you are very poor, that is something, this is, this is, this is about internal Venezuelan politics. This is not going to reshape, you know, the geography of Latin America. Let's move to our final topic for today. On December 5th, the presidents of three elite universities, Harvard, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and the University of Pennsylvania, testified before Congress about their institution's responses to the rise in anti-Semitism on their campuses since Hamas's October 7 terror attack on Israel. To say it didn't go well would be an understatement. A grilling by Republican Representative Elise Stefanik of New York on Wednesday had serious consequences for the three schools, public condemnations, awkward walkbacks, a looming congressional investigation, and, for Penn, resignations at the highest level. The episode makes clear that elite universities, which already have a checkered history on free speech, are on extraordinarily thin ice with alumni, donors, and a bipartisan collection of politicians all calling on them to do better for their Jewish students as the semester draws to a close. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit in this morning dispatch piece uh, to get to what really caused uh, the ruckus, particularly with regard to the president of Penn. Uh, when Stefanik pressed each president on whether calling for the genocide of Jews was against their institution's harassment policies, which do not have to align with the First Amendment since they are all private universities, the administrators were evasive and equivocal. Kornbluth said, uh, this is the president of MIT, um, depending on the context, such statements would be investigated as harassment if pervasive and severe. Stefanik then asked McGill, at Penn, this quote, at Penn, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Penn's rules or code of conduct, yes or no? Smiling softly, as if cleverly avoiding a trick question, McGill responded, if the speech turns into conduct, it could be harassment, yes. Pressed again, she ultimately said, quote, it is a context-dependent decision whether to consider such language harassment. Bewildered, Stefanik repeated McGill's answer to clarify conduct, meaning committing the act of genocide. Gay, the president of Harvard, when asked whether calling for genocide of Jews violated Harvard's bullying and harassment policies, responded, quote, it can be depending on the context. Asked persistently to clarify by Stefanik, Gay, too, repeated her answers with a smile. Stefanik, uh, stunned, Stefanik concluded, these are unacceptable answers across the board. Um, 
this is strikes me as one of those pinata kind of stories that you can hit from almost any angle and it is going to bear some kind of a reward. So I'm going to talk about it briefly from the perspective that I would bring to it, which is somebody who once did communications. And I just want to say that I understand, you know, if you watch the video of this, there is a phalanx of lawyers sitting behind these three university presidents, and the answers are very carefully crafted so as to pass a certain kind of legal muster that is not going to get them into true legal trouble further down the line. If you are going to do that, and I have been in interviews where I knew going into it as a spokesman for an organization or a campaign that it was going to be hostile. And one of the things that you are taught when you are taught how to do this is they can ask the question 19 different ways and you give the clear, simple, unequivocal answer over and over and over and over and over again until they decide to move on. The same kind of rules, generally speaking, that apply to someone with a camera for a news station, they have a limited amount of time, also apply to this case that, you know, Elise Stefanik, all the other people, they have five minutes in order to ask you questions. Your goal is to not look shifty and awful and unbelievable and smirking while you give an answer to say that, you know, again, independent of the legal concerns that calls for the genocide of a people are just generally not, a, it depends on the context in which we're calling for genocide. And again, one of the further implications of that too is like, well, if it turns into action, so it's only a problem if students at Harvard, Penn, or MIT start committing genocide themselves, it, it just strains credulity. So even if you're coming to this with the perspective of, I don't want to get the institution I represent in major legal trouble. Like, learn a poker face. Like, learn to look like you're taking it seriously, even if you are not. Because the impression that a lot of people came away from this with was that these kind of universities and you can rehearse chapter and verse of how horrible that they have been on free speech over the last 10, 15 years, if not much, much longer, but certainly concentrated in the last decade or so. When it comes to speech targeting Jews on campus are now backing away and, and really, you know, covering themselves in the First Amendment. It was a terrible presentation from an optics perspective, and I cannot believe that professionals at that level were that bad at this. Yeah, the strain on credulity to me is exactly that last point about free speech. So the, the FIRE uh, recent uh, survey on free speech on college campuses, which people make criticize the criteria on, you know, in some legitimate grounds, whatever, but it's clear and there's, there's real metrics there. Um, UPenn out of hundred possible hundred being free, like, you know, the freest you could be in terms of free speech, got an 11.13 score. Harvard got 0.00. It is literally the worst scored. There are some that were not able to be scored, but the worst scored college or university in the country in terms of free speech. And this is coming from students' perceptions, right? Whether or not they felt comfortable expressing their views um, and being heard. So the idea that these institutions are committed to free speech is preposterous. Um, there is no free speech on these campuses. Now, there should be. I wish they were committed to free speech, um, but they are just... You know, it's like they decide, okay, now we're going to go to bat for it, and they pick the absolute wrong issue. And for those maybe wondering, okay, there might be people saying, well, I'm for free speech. Yeah, you know, if you don't do anything, why shouldn't you be able to say whatever you want? That's kind of what they're trying to say in this hearing. Um, well, I think most listeners, most Americans, to pick a, a closer-to-home issue, uh, if the Ku Klux Klan wanted to arrange a rally on a college campus, none of us would object, or most of us anyway, would not object uh, to a college or university saying, no, we won't allow that. 
Or if they were like, no, but we're not going to do anything. We're just going to pass out our literature. We're just going to express ourselves and our opinions. They'd say, no, we're not going to let the Ku Klux Klan have a rally on our campus. Why? Because there are limits to free speech. It's a real thing. It's something that absolutely needs to be valued and preserved, especially on college and university campuses where academic freedom is so central to the expansion of human knowledge. But there are limits, and those limits are natural law. It's very, it's, it's that simple. Yet again, uh, it comes back to that. Um, if the speech is actually not, not imaginarily, <laughs> but actually inciting violence, um, that's a basic violation of people's right to safety. The government or authority figures have a role to step in and prevent that. Um, and for anyone, you know, thinking, oh, this is a scapegoating, there were plenty of groups who organized rallies and protests in support of the people of Palestine who were not justifying what Hamas did, who were not repeating the rhetoric of genocide and anti-Semitism. It is entirely possible to have a you know, politically unpopular opinion on any college campus in this country without crossing these lines. Um, and it's ridiculous that these college presidents felt like if they had in any way, you know, not given this convoluted, politicized sort of answer, they would be violating those students' rights. It's ridiculous. They should have just come right out and said, no, we don't support that. We do support people, you know, having differing political opinions, but we don't support people supporting genocide. Like, it's really easy. You get rid of those people. Who's going to be upset? Other supporters of genocide? How does that hurt your reputation, right? Like, like the, the, the political costs are not even there if you just take a, a minute to think about it. So, um, yeah, I, I basically agree with you. <laughs> yeah, the, I think one of the other points to, to underscore, and I just interviewed Greg Lukianoff from FIRE about uh, his most recent book that uh, is an episode of Act in Line that'll uh, be out, I think, this week. Uh, it, the, the whole notion of, of cancel culture, at least in the way that he defines it, is um, that it, it is we're talking about relatively mainstream views that are a mob forms around trying to get people canceled or fired or removed from whatever position it has for relatively mainstream views. So um, your point is well taken about, you know, why they would prohibit a Klan rally on campus. But, you know, it is worth making the point that there is just things that things that fall within the completely normal parameters of political conversation in this country, but come from a conservative or right-wing perspective that these universities have absolutely no tolerance for whatsoever. And in fact, would probably in a lot of cases liken to having a Klan rally somewhere on campus. Like I guarantee if you put Lexus and Nexus in front of me right now, it would not take me long to find an example of some completely benign right-wing opinion being compared to the Ku Klux Klan. So it is just so impossibly hard. It really would be one thing if the standard that they were articulating in this hearing of you know free speech on campus and Harvard being a home for free inquiry, if that were true in ways like this that I find gross and disgusting, but that was being equally applied, would not have nearly the problem. You know, I, I get generally very bothered by the um, – I can't remember where I heard this phrase from, but people who are truffle swines for hypocrisy – uh, in most cases, I think that that is just kind of a fool's errand. It's like, okay, great. You've pointed out that there's hypocrisy in the world. There's plenty of hypocrisy in the world. Um, I think this is one of those cases where the hypocrisy is particularly galling, that when it comes to this specific issue and when you couple it with the stories that you have seen, there was a uh, – you juxtapose it with a press conference that was happening basically across the street where Jewish students from these campuses – we're sharing stories of how intimidated they have felt on campuses. You look at the story of Cooper Union in New York of um, pro, uh, uh, purportedly po pro-Palestinian uh, protesters ended up essentially locking these students in the library for a period of time, intimidating them. There is a lot of 
there is a lot transpiring on these campuses that is just not pure speech that is moving into the realm of action. And to see it being kind of defended as context dependent in this way by these presidents is, is I think, what is really galling to a lot of people, myself included. So I'm going to touch on some of the issues that both of you brought up, and then I'm going to bring up the real issue, which is money. <laughs> so Eric is absolutely right. Any communications professional will tell you that Marshawn Lynch was right. Marshawn Lynch did not want to appear after the game to answer questions because he knew he would get in trouble if he answered questions. When the NFL insisted that he come and answer questions, he would answer every question with the phrase, both teams played hard and run out the clock. There is no reason why— You're forgetting his best line, though. He transitioned eventually to, I'm just here so I don't get fined. Yes. So— each and every one of these university presidents, this was a setup. This was a setup from the House because they saw these horrible instances of campus anti-Semitism. They saw a way to both bring attention to this issue and to benefit politically. And each and every one of these university presidents should have declined because they were going to get these sorts of questions and there is no good answer that they are willing to provide to these questions. Instead, they came and they are now reaping the whirlwind. Free speech should not be the guiding principle of what a university is about. Universities should be about understanding and about truth. And FIRE is emphatically wrong about this for precisely this reason. Because according to Hoyle's Dictionary of Free Speech, and you'll see FIRE has come out and criticized the University of Pennsylvania for firing the the for the president resigned. Resigning, yes. And also the, the, uh, the head of the board of trustees also resigned. And they have criticized this and see this as imperiling, potentially imperiling free speech on campus. The reality of it is in order for learning and understanding to take place, a place has to – a place of learning needs to be a place where students don't feel the sort of intimidation that Eric was alluding to. And this sort of speech is designed to intimidate and to inflame, and it is First Amendment protected speech. It is just the sort of protection that is, it's totally incongruous, incongru it's a to at a total incongruity to what the university's mission is. All opinions do not deserve to be aired in a place of learning and understanding. Most opinions are wrong. Some are even harmful. Those should be excluded. This is why you have departments. This is why you have professors. This is why you have any authority at all. This is why you go to school. This is why universities act in loco parentis. Like this is basic stuff that certain people just refuse to see. Fire in their free speech rankings put Hillsdale College as sort of a warning flag for free speech, not because, let's say, left-wing speakers are not welcome on Hillsdale College's campus, not because students would, like, would, would not like to hear from them, but because Hillsdale College has a code of conduct and has a speech code that would limit precisely this sort of speech from occurring. This is like a very real conversation that people need to have about what is education and what sort of institutional forms should it take and what norms should it have. 1968 was a mistake. The Berkeley free speech movement in the United States and what happened in universities throughout Europe in 1968 was a mistake. Pope Benedict XVI was right. Like, this is just very basic. And we're Americans, and this is America, and we love the First Amendment, and we treasure it, and we should. But it is, and now I'm going to get in trouble, context-dependent. Okay? It absolutely is in precisely the opposite way that the president of the University of Pennsylvania thought. This matters in a bigger way. This is going to matter is mattering 
the president of Pennsylvania has, uh, University of Pennsylvania has resigned. The head of the board of trustees has resigned. The reason is because this affects money. The job of a college president is to represent the university in some general sense and to raise money. This is what the job is. Like there's some administrative duties, but if you're not raising money, you will not last. And this sort of thing is poison to donors. People donate to universities because they want their names on the building, because they want some of the light that shines on the university to shine on them. Not because they want to be associated with anti-Semitism and calls for genocide. They just don't want it. There are plenty of universities um, that are out there that are willing to take completely normal stances on these issues and prohibit precisely this kind of speech and to move forward and create a welcoming environment for all students. Like, they exist. They don't, they don't, the money does not have to go here. Now, there is a very, very scary question, which is that there's a lot of prestige wrapped up in these institutions, and there's a lot of money wrapped up in these endowments. And there's a question of whether or not these institutions can essentially act against the interest of donors, alumni, and students in perpetuity because they're essentially self-funding and because these institutions have been captured. And that's a real, real serious question um, that we'll have to look at. But they are not the only game in town, and this represents a very very elite section of university life on the one hand, but also a very marginal in terms of how pervasive these attitudes are in American universities. Yeah, so I would just uh, clarify, uh, I didn't mention the fire rankings to totally endorse their ideology. That is why I appealed to natural law, um, that it has to be bounded. And I think that I would reiterate that appeal um, because they are right that free inquiry, free speech, academic freedom is necessary for the advancement of understanding and our knowledge of the truth, which is the point of universities and colleges. But by freedom of speech and academic freedom, I don't mean calling for genocide. And I don't mean that because I know what the natural law is and I know how it works. And I know that freedom of speech is not absolute, true freedom of speech, uh, actually grounded in human nature and in human dignity. Um, but there are many, many schools with a far too pragmatic, if that, uh, policy. Um, some in, you know, in the ca these cases, which have been captured by pretty extreme ideologies and which have now seen the ire of their donors, uh, as you point out, and rightly so. Um, but so I, you know, I'm not really in a big disagreement with you there, but I want to make sure, <laughs> want to make sure it was clear that I, I wasn't trying to say, yes, I'm all for, you know, the, uh, the sort of perspective we get, you know, post 1968 on what freedom of speech on college campuses should look like. However, I'm also not for, you know, we're going to, um, well, I'll put it this way. I, I think I'm fine with Hillsdale College having their own code of conduct, which includes speech. Um, they're a private institution, and that's that's part of it. Um, I think it's a little more problematic at a public institution, but even there, there are standards, and the, that standard is a natural law. The other one is, of course, related uh, rule of law. The fact that no one is being treated equally in terms of what sort of speech is censured and which is not um, shows that it is entirely arbitrary and not based on any objective moral grounding. And without that objective moral grounding, you can't have freedom. You can't have free speech. I, I think we'll wrap this up with, I just want to make one point, which is I think one of the key problems here and for those who are looking to check the box on the Act and Unwind bingo card, yes, I'm going to make a reference to Yuval Levin. Yuval's point about what institutions like 
Harvard and Penn and MIT have become is that they have ceased to be what they were created for, which is institutions that attempt to form people into better people. And they have become platforms on which people perform for their own aggrandizement. And I think in, you know, keeping I've, I've probably got some mixed opinions between the two of you on you know the virtue of what uh, a fires project vis-a-vis universities. But I certainly have some sympathies with the what with what Dan pointed out there. But I think for me, the biggest thing that is a distraction from all of this is with or without those rules. These are not institutions that are pursuing those ends anymore. They are credentialing institutions particularly the, the kind of ones that were represented at this hearing. I, I did enjoy, I can't remember who it was in the Wall Street Journal who made the point of I'm no longer calling them elite universities. They're expensive universities. But like they have completely to him, and I agree with this, I think, shed their status of being elite in what they are attempting to do and what they are attempting to be. And if they would, if more universities would get back to the purpose that they were created for, uh, which is education and forming human beings into better human beings, then I think figuring out a lot of this stuff, a lot more people would have a lot of more patience for. But because we see how gallingly hypocritical they are on this, because we see that they are engaged in a certain kind of political reinforcement of their own choosing. And because, to your point about money, a lot of them have become essentially hedge funds that do a little education on the side. I think this is why people is really exasperated at what is happening here. All right. Totally agree about the part about formation, but whoever said that in the Wall Street Journal is completely backwards. These are elite but not expensive. In fact, most people who go there barely have any debt when they graduate. Like Princeton, you can almost get the entire thing covered. They are elite in that their acceptance rates are very low. Uh, which and is, particular. Which is one of the only things they do right, in my opinion. But that is a conversation for another day. It does sound like a conversation for another day, and maybe the kind of conversation that might be forthcoming in a podcast product from the Acton Institute, so you shall have to stay tuned. But for now, we'll call it a wrap there. Thank you for listening to Acton Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, please look right now in the show notes for a link where you can subscribe directly to Acton Unwind or just search Acton Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so that more people can find our show. Thanks to Dan. Thanks to Dylan. For the Acton Institute, I'm Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week.